It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From Fox News, it's The Campaign with Brett Baer. On Saturday, the Fox News decision desk projected former Vice President Joe Biden would win the presidency. Later that night, Biden told a crowd in Wilmington, Delaware, I ran as a proud Democrat. I will now be an American president. I will work as hard for those who didn't vote for me as those who did. President Trump has not conceded and vowed to pursue various legal challenges over ballot counting in key battleground states, while also tweeting, I won this election by a lot. Our socially distant panel is anxiously waiting to discuss. We'll bring them in. Political editor at National Journal, Josh Kraschauer, senior Washington correspondent for Politico, Anna Palmer, and founding editor at the Washington Free Beacon and AEI resident fellow, Matthew Cotinetti. Anna, uh, this has been a bit surreal as we've had a president-elect and a vice president-elect give speeches, uh, acceptance speeches, and yet the president has not conceded and is vowing to fight on. We should point out it's not obviously official until everything's certified and the electors are chosen, uh, but there really isn't uh, something yet that we've seen that can move votes in a way to get President Trump to 270 electoral votes. Yeah, I would just make two points. One, I think it's just pretty stunning how alone the president is right now. He's getting conflicting advice from different factions of his team to stay in the fight. There's a lot of reporting that we've been talking to people saying he's never going to concede even on his way out the door. But you also see that split of Republican leaders and the unwillingness to, to take him to account to say, you know, it's time to move on here. You, we have not heard a single thing from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on this. And, you know, from Kevin McCarthy, the leader of House Republicans, he's been on Fox News defending the president. Yeah. Matthew, there are people that are saying, why do media organizations get to project it? Well, we've been projecting races uh, since the beginning. Associated Press has been doing it since 1948 in an effort not to have an election month. And the statistical projections are just that. They're not the official sign-off that comes from the states and the actual election of electors. So as the official process goes forward, we have to look back to 2016, where we called a race in some of those states that was narrower for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton than it is Joe Biden over Donald Trump. The Clinton team had legal challenges going on, but Donald Trump became president-elect and gave a speech, an acceptance speech, the next night. Right. Uh, You do have to wonder, though, if the situation was reversed, would Biden have conceded as readily as Hillary did four years ago? And I mean, she told him not to. She told him specifically, exactly, whatever exactly you do. Right. Exactly right. So that, that suggests to me that um, the polarization is real and um, it's, it's not so much a question of which party doing, doing what. I mean, I'm not surprised by the situation, Brett. Um, look, Trump and his supporters don't trust the media. They don't trust the tech industry. They don't trust the polls and they don't trust the Democrats who run many of the cities in which these margins carried President Trump over the top. So I doubt they're ever actually going to recognize the results. Um, but Trump's problem is, is twofold. One, 
in order to win this election, he'd have to reverse the count in not one, but several states. And the margins in all of those states, Georgia being the closest, uh, far exceed any uh, margin that's been reversed before. So uh, we're, going to, we're going to end up in a situation where Trump will leave presidency. It just won't be um, as people usually do. Mm-hmm. Josh, what about this time and, and this effort uh, on the legal challenges? You know, everybody says, listen, Al Gore had 37 days down in Florida. Well, that was a specific case, a challenge of ballots. It started out with hanging chads and how they were hanging or not hanging, but it expanded to other ballots in Florida, like the butterfly ballot in Palm Beach. And I remember it well, bouncing from courtroom to courtroom. The other thing that was different in 2000 is the difference in votes was 537 votes, not thousands and thousands and thousands of votes as we see in a number of these states. Yeah, you're right, Brett. This isn't coming down to one state like Florida. And even in the closest of states, the margin for Biden, like in Georgia, is growing and it's in the thousands, not in the hundreds. So, the, the you know, even a successful legal challenge, and there hasn't been really much of a valid theory I've heard from, from the Trump campaign that really suggests that they have much of a chance of winning in court. But if, even if they do, they'd have to overcome the deficits of thousands and thousands of votes, even in the closest of states. And I also think there's sort of a political disincentive, at least, as far as congressional Republicans go into drawing this thing out indefinitely, which is the two runoffs for the Senate in, in Georgia. Uh, that, that's a state that is going to decide whether Mitch McConnell or Chuck Schumer controls the Senate majority. Republicans have a fundamental advantage in runoff elections, you know, January elections in, in the state of Georgia. The wind is it should be at their back. But if we're still doing recounts, if Trump still hasn't conceded by December into that campaign, there's a very good chance that there'll be the Democrats that are more motivated to show up. And Republicans, certainly, if they think everything is fraudulent, they may not turn out for a January election. So there's a real risk that if Trump and his campaign draws us out too long, he could actually hurt McConnell's chance of remaining in the majority, even though all the odds, you know, all, all the fundamentals favor Republicans, certainly uh, right now. Yeah, that's an interesting point. The other interesting question is would, let's say, they wrap up the legal challenges before then? Would, ahead of that January 5th runoff, the two runoffs, and a, a Donald Trump be asked to campaign for either David Perdue or, or Kelly Loeffler? I mean, both of those senators really bear-hugged the president. If you remember, Senator Perdue skipped the last debate with John Ossoff to attend a rally with Donald Trump. Clearly, uh, they felt like that was necessary in the state. Kelly Loeffler also was very pro-Trump in her remarks. It would not be surprising to me if they had him, you know, attend a rally or something, something he loves to do. And so far, he hasn't done that. And then they've said, actually, we've had sources say that, you know, there might be some Trump, you know, car rallies or different things like that. But the president has no full-scale rallies Um, So you could see him wanting to go out with a victory, finding a win some way could maybe be a little salve to the wound of losing this election. Uh It's interesting to to think about the the Senate. Obviously, we haven't called a couple of races, but it does look like it comes down to those two. Dan Sullivan, it looks like he's going to win in Alaska. I'm not sure why Alaska takes so long with its votes whether they're putting them on sleds and taking them someplace. I don't know, but we eventually are going to call Alaska. Um, and then North Carolina, Tom Tillis looks like he's headed for a win, but they're waiting for North Carolina to finish the official vote because there's some Democratic areas that were still coming in. 
Uh, that would mean that those two Senate races, Matthew, down in Georgia, could, if Democrats picked up both, be 50-50 uh, with Kamala Harris as VP breaking the tie. The question then becomes, for somebody like Joe Manchin, does he then become a kingmaker as far as you know, Democratic plans uh, to do big things on the progressive side if they won both those races? My rule is always, you might have a majority in the Senate, but no one ever really controls the Senate. It's just a question of how many of your votes, uh, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, you can uh, line up safely. In a 50-50 Senate, um, which is the best case for uh, Democrats, um, I think Leader Schumer in this situation would have a lot of trouble um, getting, getting the votes he needs, and Manchin would be the key vote. Now, in the past, Manchin has been a pretty reliable vote uh, for Democrats on the big issues where it matters, with the uh, you know, exception of the things that affect a state like um, uh, coal and um, climate change. But, so what are you talking about, though, like the Schumer pushes on not voting for Tim Scott's legislation uh, on police reform or Amy Coney Barrett or... Right, exactly. So the question is, on the filibuster, would Manchin, if, if the pressure from Schumer came down, would Manchin bend there and allow them to, to abolish the legislative uh, filibuster, which would allow um, a lot of the Democratic priorities, not, not the truly big ticket progressive priorities that we heard during the campaign, like packing the court or adding new states or abolishing the Electoral College or anything like that. But, you know, would, would that allow more of the Biden-Harris agenda to go through? I, it's an open question, just as Josh suggests, the runoffs are an open question. Um, I would say, though, also in a 50-50 Senate, Biden would be able to get a lot of his tax plan and even some of his health care plan through on reconciliation rules, which don't require a filibuster-proof majority, that you can pass those on just a, a majority vote. Too. So th th this is, the, the, the Georgia, a lot depends on the Georgia races, uh, whether the Biden agenda, even parts of it get, get through or not. Yeah, Josh, you know, you look at this election for other themes. The other theme is, and, and you know, the Trump supporters say, how is it possible that Republicans on the congressional ticket and down ballot, even state legislatures, could hold on to all the Republican state legislatures and pick up anywhere from five to 10 seats, maybe even 12, when all is said and done on the congressional side. Um, that's a significant, significant shift to where we thought it was going in. Yeah, there was a lot of split ticket voting, more than I think anyone expected going into the election. And that was sort of illustrated with Susan Collins winning by a sizable margin in Maine. She almost won the, the, the very bluish a Portland area, the congressional district in South Maine, which everyone thought was going to be a Democratic stronghold. And there were a lot of Joe Biden, Susan Collins voters in Maine. And, and the other race that I looked at really closely that shows how much split ticket voting took place in key, key areas was the, that's Nebraska second congressional district, which allocates an electoral vote. Uh, Joe Biden ran up the score in suburban Omaha, did a lot better than Hillary Clinton did four years ago. But the Republican congressman in that district, running against the exact same opponent, did a lot better in his race as well. So we're, I mean, I'm still looking at the data, but like there, there was clearly a lot of Republican, people who wanted to vote Republican and did vote Republican for Congress. But a critical mass of them, and especially in the suburbs, were uncomfortable actually casting a ballot for president.
Yeah, Anna, you buy that? Yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting to Josh's point. I think there's a lot of digging still to be done, but clearly a lot of voters were uncomfortable with the concept of giving uh, Democrats and all Democratic Washington and what that would look like. Um, so instead, there was clearly frustration or, you know, people were done with uh, Donald Trump at the top of the ticket were okay with Joe Biden, but then voted for Republicans in a lot of areas. And, and Republican women picked up quite a few seats in the House. I mean, I think the more surprising thing to me is how badly uh, Democrats did in the House and what a slim majority the Speaker has to work with over the next two years. I think that that could spell a lot of trouble for her in terms of trying to actually get Joe Biden's agenda passed. I mean, can we put the myth of a blue Texas behind us? I mean, look at John Cornyn was supposed to be this, you know, race that was going to go down to the wire. He wins by 10. The congressional seats in Texas, the Democrats held gone. And uh, Texas really didn't, didn't factor in. It went longer than we thought it was going to go, you know, from years ago. But, uh, but it's different now, Matthew. Yeah, the, I mean, the map is changing. I mean, if you look at, say, Ohio, Iowa, Florida, those states, there's been a definite red shift over the past couple of elections. Those, they were once considered swing states. They're becoming pretty deep red now. You know, conversely, states like um, Arizona and Georgia are turning into swing states. They used to be reliably red. Now they seem to be trending uh, a little bit blue. It's hard to tell whether that's just peculiar to Trump or not. We're going to have to wait until 2024, I think, definitively. And once again, we see that uh, the presidential election that four years from now will be determined in the upper Midwest. I mean, Trump's margin in Wisconsin was, was very thin. You know, I mean, the, the, these narrow margins that benefited him four years ago now turn in Biden's favor. And so that's where I think presidential elections will be fought. But for now, in, in Texas, um, I, I think the Republicans are sitting pretty um, and, uh, at all levels, whether it's uh, gubernatorial, whether it's in the state house, or whether it's at the uh, congressional level. We'll hear from our panel after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. And I'm minus COVID, minus COVID. You wonder what, what this election looks like. I mean, essentially... Biden ran on COVID, a lot about COVID and healthcare and the president's handling of it. it. You just can't think about how much that changed this race, not only in subject, but also how it was voted with all the mail-in ballots and now all the controversy about them. Yeah, I, I, think, I think there was a clear hit that Trump took because of his handling of COVID, but perhaps not quite as much of a hit as we expected when looking at the exit poll data, at least, because, you know, I think that when we see the, the, the likelihood of a shy Trump vote, uh, we still have to look at the data and kind of do, do, do a lot of after action analysis. But there's a lot of suggestion that perhaps there were a lot of voters who may have agreed with the president's message on you know, not shutting down everything, you know, trying to, trying to live with COVID and having a little more balance, but they didn't want to share that with pollsters. And, you know, I think it's interesting that, um, you know, I, I think COVID certainly hurt him in the, in the big picture, but it didn't hurt him as much as a lot of us expected. And I think that's going to be something that is going to be, you know, for, you know, on a mind of the Biden campaign, that this was a very close race. I mean, the, the one thing about the overall political map that, they, that, I, that I take away looking forward 
is that the margins in the Midwest were a lot closer than we thought at one point about in, in Wisconsin and the margins in Georgia and Arizona and the Sun Belt really, really close, even though Biden's ahead in, in, in both those states. So you know, it's a divided country. This is a divided 50-50 country and no one has a permanent advantage. It, yeah, it really is, Josh. That's a good point. And, you know, does that, Anna, change the way the Biden transition team thinks about going forward, what they need to do to reach out to the other 71 million people who voted for Donald Trump. You know, for a while you had, obviously Biden in the closing weeks went down to Warm Springs in Georgia where FDR had his place, his little White House. Uh, and for weeks before that, the, the Biden camp was selling that this is going to be a different kind of Joe Biden. He's going to be transformational. He's going to be FDR-like in the way that he approaches big items and in an effort to get progressives behind his campaign. But now as you look at the results of this and the prospect of a GOP-controlled Senate, does that change their ambition for how he governs? I think it has to. I've been skeptical for a long time uh, about this concept that Joe Biden and his allies think he's a different man and he's going to come and do bunch, a bunch of big deals in Washington that nobody else could get done. I think the environment that he left after being in the Senate and in the White House uh, is a very different one. It's much more partisan. It's pretty hard knuckled. He won't have, he's the first president who elects will come in without a majority in both chambers. And so he doesn't have the same kind of mandate that if you were one party in Washington, in the same way that Donald Trump was able to get tax reform done and other, you know, Barack Obama was able to do Obamacare. And so I think they have to tailor some of the legislative agenda towards that. But I will say, I do think you could see certainly on COVID relief or infrastructure, some of these really big ticket items that both Democrats and Republicans have wanted to do for a really long time, they might have a chance under a Biden White House. Yeah, Matthew? A lot will depend on uh, who's the Senate Majority Leader, like, like I suggested. And Mitch McConnell then becomes really the most important man in Washington if he's the leader, because he'll have to make a strategic decision. Does he want to obstruct basically everything? like the Senate Republicans tried to do uh, when they were in the minority, when Barack Obama came into power? Or uh, is he going to try to uh, do some compromising, especially on uh, COVID and the economy? You know, to hear Biden and his campaign over the last few days, they're not acting as though they're going to be, you know, Mr. Moderate. Um, he, he has claimed a mandate on four issues, uh, coronavirus, the economy, racial inequities, and climate change. Um, and his, one of his spokespeople over the weekend uh, tried to assure, uh, reassure Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York to say that this is a bold progressive agenda. So Biden is going to be stuck, I think, between a, a, a resurgent Republican Party, um, which is I mean, really incredible. When you, when you look at the past two outgoing Republican presidents, they were both named Bush, right? situation for their party they left behind in 1992 and 2008 is far worse, was far worse than the situation that uh, Trump will leave behind in January. So you have the resurgent Republicans on one hand, and then you have the resurgent left in the Democratic Party on the other. And it has been just uh, from a conservative perspective like mine, Brett, it's been wonderful to observe the infighting going on in the Democratic House caucus right now between, say, moderates like Alison Spanberger and Connor Lamb and the members of the squad whose size will be growing 
uh, thanks to some of the returns last week. Mm -hmm. Josh, last thing. I mean, we are obviously in this surreal time where this legal challenge continues in a number of different states, and the president seems very adamant that he's not moving off of that anytime soon. He is still president until January 20th. I mean, what potentially does that look like in this environment? Well, it could be a, a normal transition, or it could be what, what I'm hearing from folks at the White House, that it could be a very rocky two months uh, based on you know just today's news that he fired Secretary of Defense Esper, and there may be other people heading out the door, getting the ax in, in this transition period. And I think that's more likely. Um, you know, I, I, I actually think the longer term outlook for the next couple of years is a little more optimistic than what Matt laid out, just because I think the political incentives, there's going to be gridlock and, and, and civil war within the parties. But as far as the Senate goes, if McConnell holds on to his majority leadership, he's going to have a narrower majority. And he has a tough Senate map in 2022 with a lot of bluer states at risk. And Biden certainly, you know, there are a lot of non-ideological issues that are going to be coming to the forefront, namely the dealing with the pandemic in the first few months. So I, I think there is an opportunity with that narrow Senate majority, the relationship Biden's had with McConnell in the past, and just the political interests of both both, both leaders to actually, you know, and actually work together. And, and, you'll, and I think you'll see Susan Collins and Mitt Romney and Joe Manchin being big time power players, um, even, even, even with their parties in disarray. I, I think there is some potential for deal making. Um, in, in, a, in a divided Washington, despite all the, the chaos. I think that's possible too. And I mean, I, maybe it's aspirational that, that Washington actually works, but the way it seems to work, at least in the past, if you look backwards, is a divided government with narrow margins. Yeah, I think that's, I, I think you have a point there. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I have a hard time seeing big things getting done in divided Washington. But if you could have a new era of kind of deal makers, whether that's Mitt Romney and Susan Collins and Joe Manchin and kind of the moderates play a more powerful role than we've seen in the last uh, several years. It could make for some potential for some very interesting things to get done. The big question I think really is though, is what happens with COVID relief? Are they able to do that before the end of the year? You're gonna have the debt limit coming up in the summer and July. I mean, there's a lot of just kind of the blocking and tackling that, I mean, Congress has basically just lurched from crisis to crisis and hasn't done a lot of big ticket items in a long time. So people are gonna have to dust, dust off those skills if we uh, really think something more uh, ambitious could get done. All right, guys, we'll follow it, every element of it. Uh, thanks so much for being here. Here's a bit of election trivia. November 7th, 1916, on this day, following the election between Democratic incumbent President Woodrow Wilson and Republican Charles Evan Hughes, it appeared as though Hughes had secured victory, and many newspapers prematurely declared him the winner of the election. But as votes were tallied over the course of the week, Wilson made a major gain in California, and by November 22nd, Hughes formally conceded the race to President Wilson. So that will do it for this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts, Spotify or wherever. Make sure to leave a rating and review. We may be changing the name soon from the campaign to something else, but we'll see. We want to hear from you. For Josh and Anna and Matthew, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. The 
Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.